Today we'll be discussing the CBC radio and television show Canned or Reads, and I'll be giving my picks for my top medical-related books. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today we'll be discussing Ali's involvement with the Canadian book competition series, Canada Reads. And I'll give my picks for my favorite medical-based books. It's very good. You know, I will, I will just say this off the top. I've gotten a lot of emails from listeners, Asif, personally to me. People are very upset that when you say my name, you go Ali Hassan. You go down on Hassan oh, yeah. as if you're so disappointed to have a co-host on this. Uh, just a note. A lot of emails. Well, lot okay. of I, I don't know if I should mention this, but people already know. When I talk, I often do the up up vocalization at the end of saying something. So it saying sounds something? a bit like I'm always asking a question. Yes, that is when true. I say something and I'm trying very hard not to do it. I'm a bit worried of bringing this up because I would say most people notice that I do that. But now <laughs> if you didn't notice it, now you're going to notice it all the time. Probably uh, stop podcast so. ruined. Podcast ruined. Anyway, we have uh forget all that. Forget about Asif's various uh, speech related inadequacies and deficiencies. Let's talk about uh, this episode, which I'm pretty excited about, we wanted to talk about literature at some point. I'm a fan and become more of a fan over the years. And I'm, I wasn't even sure if uh, Asif reads anything. I, I just don't know where you, you watch tons of movies. You listen to tons of music. You work very hard. I was like, there's no way this guy's reading fiction. And I was correct. But you do have books that you've read over the years that made a, quite an impact on your life. So I'm pretty excited to talk to you about those. And based on what little I know about a um, couple of them, I think they're, they're great recommendations for people to look into. And we should mention, you don't need to be a doctor to read these books. These are not medical textbooks. Yeah, correct. And and uh, yeah, I do. I don't read as many books as you do, I would say, or, you know, my wife or, or you know, our, our fathers. Your father has since passed away, but he was obviously a huge reader. And it's almost like our fathers who were friends had a competition for the, a library in their house, right? Mm -hmm. Your dad definitely had more books than my dad because he was an author, a poet. And, uh, but I mean, you just go to their, the, either their studies or their basements and just wall to wall books. Like it was, it's, it's unbelievable how much uh, they read. So uh, definitely I do that it's it's tough i always feel guilty sometimes reading non-medical books like and not even <laughs> just medical books like we're talking about today but reading for enjoyment i always think i should always be reading for work and so uh and i end up not reading as much as i probably should but i you know, get like several books in a year whereas you know most people read several you know they're really big readers read like several books a month or even a week right that people who yeah are, my dad, huge, I mean, a uh, huge source of uh, huge source of shame for him. Anytime he saw me watching, you know, too much whatever Three's WWF company. wrestling from back in the day, Three's Company, good reference. He just would be ashamed. He's like, I'm, you know, I just don't see you reading enough. And sure enough, that guy, like every every, I mean, he watched plenty of TV as well. But you know, before he would fall asleep, he's reading. Before he takes a nap, he's reading often found with a book just covering his face because he was reading it and then it just plopped on his onto his own face and he fell asleep. So yeah, I mean, he was clearly a speed reader also because he, I mean, it was insane the pace with which he could uh, read. I don't know. I, I should take a speed reading class if I want to. That's actually a crazy thing. I read extremely quickly. I, I read 
on like very very quickly for the average person, which okay. should make me read more books. But yet I don't. yeah, so I don't know. It, that probably makes up for your extremely slow typing. And right. handwriting. Everything comes out in the wash, they say, right? That's, that's what they say. Yeah. Yeah. My handwriting is not bad. slow. It's just disgusting and repulsive. Yeah, that's true, I guess. I can write quickly, but it's not eligible. I think you need like a Rosetta Stone type thing to really um, decide. Did you just say handwriting. eligible? Oh, yeah. No, I meant illegible. You meant, yeah, it's not legible. It's, it's, it's eligible for zero awards. It's eligible for the worst handwriting of the year award, perhaps. We're off topic. Let's get back on to this train, this literature train here. Right, Ali. So I want to ask you about Canada Reads. So let's just give a bit of background. Actually, you can give a bit of background in a second because I don't know the genesis of it. I just know I heard about this show many years ago, and it's basically a book competition for new books that have come out that are by Canadian authors. And it's kind of like a reality show competition where they have these different guests talking about it. So I, I saw it on, on CBC many years ago, and then you, I mean, you'll tell me the exact year, but then you started hosting it, which which was a, a big surprise and, and kind of cool that I knew somebody who was doing it. So why don't we just start at the beginning? Because this is coming up soon, right? Canada Reads. It is. Starts on March 27th, 2022, and it runs that week, that Monday to Thursday of that week. Okay. So maybe let's go back track for a sec and just how did it start? Not necessarily your involvement, but what's the genesis of Canada Reads? How did it start, et cetera? Listen, if you mention Genesis twice, it's very difficult for me to not start thinking about still Studio. No, dude, that was Phil Collins and his solo like, album. Oh, man. Uh, okay, what do we got in the Genesis world? Anyway, I even think of like, Biko, Biko. I think no, of that's, everything. That's Peter Gabriel's solo. I think of everything. No, you're, you're thinking of, of the big uh, Genesis hits like, it's no fun being an illegal alien. It's no, yeah. But yes, that's, that's, uh, that's great. Pretty inappropriate. <laughs> oh, God. Well, it's, yeah. Land of Confusion, turn it on again. It's great. There's some good stuff here. Okay, let's not. Oof, very easily distracted today. People are like, this guy hosts a show that's impossible. It is. And I think that's why Asif was like, that's crazy. Uh, not that he knew the guy who hosts it, that the guy who hosts it is a guy he knew to be a massive ding dong. But I, I do host it and I do enjoy it very much. It is a show that, you know, it's interesting if you look at the history of it. Two people get credit for, for sort of, you know, Peter Kavanaugh is a guy who proposed the idea of it. And then Talon Vertanian, who works at uh, CBC, she conceived the idea and the structure of the, the program, which is this, it'll be annual. It will be five panelists. All five panelists will choose a book that they believe should be the book that every Canadian reads. And they will debate it on air debate. However, over the years, I've met more than one person who has said to me that Canada Reads was their idea. So either those people were liars or they said, yeah, yeah, people liked it. But I also know over the years that happens with everything. There's always somebody going, you know, uh, I'm the one who suggested it. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But anyhow, never mind the scandal-ridden origins of this show. It started in 2002. So it has a 20-year history. And it is a phenomenal show. It then, you know, inspired a French, French language version. And it also inspired people 
might debate this, but it inspired one in the U.S. as well. Just like Dragon's Den inspired Shark Tank, apparently. So now I don't know. Somebody might be like, well, both of those were inspired by a Belgian show, which is also possible. But it feels good to have, you know, you're part of a show that is so great at, at, at doing such an incredible job of promoting literature that it's inspiring other shows in, in, in different languages and different countries. So I, you know, I'd be remiss not to mention that. But basically, when it started, it was uh, hosted by Mary Walsh, who is known as a comedic actor. And I think that set the tone for somebody like me to come up with a comedy background, a hosting background. It wasn't, you know, right from its inception, it, it's not a very stiff show, you know, and literature can be regarded as a little bit stuffy. And, and that's definitely not what's happening here. You have pretty lively debates and you have, uh, you, you need a host who can pivot very, very quickly. So over the years, I, I hate to just focus on the winners because it's just, let me just give people an understanding of the scope of this show. It is on CBC Radio. It is also on CBC Television. It is also a podcast since the last, I would say, 10 years. It's, uh, you know, people can tune in uh, online, obviously. So you get over 2 million people. Over the course of the week, 2 million people watch and listen to this show, which for our American listeners is a big deal. 2 million people in one week to tune into something. And I've, over the years, run into people who, you know, almost sheepishly admit that, oh, we have uh, Canada Reads book parties at home. I'm like, no, that's great. That's great. In the world that we live in where ignorance is like celebrated, it's so fantastic that literature is, is championed and hotly debated. And uh, it's wonderful. So basically all five books, I, I have to mention this, all five books go on to become Canadian bestsellers. So there is a winner. And that's just the sort of the format of the show is, and, and some people don't like that. Why are we debating everybody? Should, but what do you want? That's, that, that's the format. That's how it goes. Or we, we, they, every day somebody gets kicked off and it's so, a little so bit So they get a boost. Everybody really gets a boost like the Oprah, I mean, not, maybe not to the same extent, but you know, Oprah recommends a book for her yes. book club. It's, it's a huge thing. So all these books get a huge boost from Massive. It. Not Massive. just the winner necessarily. Okay. No. And sometimes, you know, it's such a beautiful sort of background story where you have, a, you know, like a mom and pop sort of publishing house. And once that book is, is uh, shortlisted and then chosen for Canada Reads, you know, these, some of these publishing houses have to like hire new people and maybe they take out a loan to do all the publishing. I have to work very quickly to get, get all these cop and it's a, it's a sort of a dream thing that happens for some small publishing houses it's a dream thing that happens for these authors some of these authors you know and this year this is the case some of them sort of manifest this in their mind this is their goal as an author to one day be on Canada reads and it's pretty wonderful do you get thing. people emailing you directly authors emailing you directly say i want to be on the show I do. You know who I get emailing me? I get people who, I get the long shots. I get people who published a book in their basement, self-published basically, and they love what they do and they just hope that, you know, is there a way maybe that Canada could read their book and I have to be like, I don't know if this is that book. I don't obviously say that. I say, you know, uh, good for you for writing this book, which I do believe, you know, it's not an easy task at all, but I'm not the person making any of these decisions. Do you pass it on necessarily or their name or their email? I'll always pass it on. I'll always pass it on. It's not up to me to say that this mm -hmm. book should not Fair be, enough, of yeah. course. I'll always pass it on and explain where it came from. But it's, uh, you know, those authors who have some 
who have a repertoire of, of, of writing, of work, a body of work, they will have managers or agents or you know PR that go right to the CBC, not sort of a private email to the host of a program. So typically, if somebody's emailing me, it's it's kind of a long shot. So why don't we just back up a sec and then talk about how the books are chosen? Is it are they chosen by the celebrity like panelists or is it chosen by the producers? Like how does that work? Right. So I cannot stress enough how hard this team in the CBC books department, the team that focuses on Canada reads, how hard they work and how much reading they do. This is their job. That's what they do. They read, but it's really pretty impressive. So what they do is, you know, it's it's a many, many month, eight to nine months of work to nail down the panelists, first of all. Okay, so that that's the first thing. You have to get a panelist who's available during that time, who likes to read, who could be on a national program debating and not worry about what does this do for my brand? I don't want to, you know, sort of cry on national TV. I don't want to argue on national TV. Some people have that in mind where it's like, this is not good for my whole look, this brand that I built. So you have to find somebody who's interested and capable and available. All these things are not that easy. So that's the first thing. Then there is this whole other juggling act, who sits at the table together, right? So number one, you you don't want to have five people from the greater Toronto area. You want to have a wide scope of people from a geographical sense. You'd love to have a wide scope of people or a breadth of people from a socioeconomic background. You know, you don't want five wealthy people at a table. You want people with varied experiences. You don't want five white people at the table. You don't want five, you know, sort of conservative leaning or liberal leaning people. So it's really that mix is super important as well about, you know, how do you get five different voices and different means so many different things. And then on top of that, actually different voices because so many people tune in via radio that you can't have two people whose voices sound the same. You can't have a situation where somebody's like, wait, who said that? Who's talking? So you actually have their literal, you know, the, 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 the sound of their voice has to be different. And of course there's, you know, gender is a factor as well. And, uh, and, and identity in, 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 in general people, you know, you want that diversity to be represented and, and CBC is very good at that, but it's not easy. It's by no means easy. And I'll just give you a, an idea of, of what the juggling act is. And this is just me, never mind the rest of it. At one point, my my first year before I before I hosted, I found out, I was told, I didn't find out, I was told directly that we're looking at you as as a possible host. We like you, we want you to do this. However, one of the panelists requires a uh, she's not a good flyer. She requires somebody to be with her when she flies you know, as a, I don't know what they said, she, she needs a, a person for support. If the CBC budget cannot accommodate this second person to come along, then the backup guest is a, is a man. A man comes in in her place, then you can't be the host because that's too many men at the table. We need a, you know, we need it to be it's, it's five. So it's like, well, it's six, including me. So we want it to be, you know, well-rounded in that regard. So, I mean, that's, you know, there's basically, if somebody at CBC was like, we don't have the money for this person's handler or support uh, worker or whatever the name of that person was, then I wouldn't have been the host. Like my entire 
last six years would have been very, very different. So it's very, the juggling act is, um, is something very, very impressive and how they pull it off every year is, uh, you know, quite a logistical, depending on who you are, nightmare or, or feet. I would say feet. It's really impressive. And they've been doing it for 20 years and again, kind of gets better and better every year. So that is done first, as you're saying, the, the, the casting, the casting. And and, and I mean, I guess, you know, it's not like you have to reapply for this job every year. You are the host until they decide to not renew your contract, I guess. Yeah. So that's kind of a given. Then they get the guests and then what happens with the books? So then the books is a whole other uh, ball game, which is occasionally, and from my understanding, this is fairly rare, but sometimes a panelist will come with, I have a book. Canadian author. I know this book. I love this book inside out. I want to champion this book. That's not too common, but it has happened. More often, it's sort of like, okay, now we have this guest. Let's get this guest to tell us about themselves and about what they typically enjoy reading. So you get this whole sort of, you know, okay, this is who I am. This is typically why I like uh, memoirs. I like uh, stuff written by, let's say, Canadian authors with a West Coast feel to them or a West Coast background. I like this. I like this. like this. And with that in hand, the CBC Books team says, okay, so let's, uh, let's recommend these seven books to you. What do you think? And so then they ship these books to the, that person and that person has to, by a, by a pretty hard deadline, go through these books and then be like, okay, I will... I will choose this one. And sometimes it happens where they're like, I don't like any of these. I don't think that any of these are the one book. They were enjoyable, but not the one I can passionately champion on a national stage. So there's that whole back and forth that they have to do with five different people. Eventually, by uh, by the December before the competition, which is always in March, by the December, there is a long list that goes out. And that long list is some of those books that the panelists themselves came to the table with thinking about and some of the ones that were recommended, some of the ones that were really enjoyed, but maybe not, they weren't regarded as Canada Reads contenders. So you have this long list. That long list also gives a bump to a lot of those authors because people start looking in, diving in, you know, sometimes taking a chance, whether this is on Canada Reads or not, I'm going to read it anyway. So that gives a bump. And then once you have that final short list, that really sends the list, uh, sends the book uh, up up the charts, as they say. Well, let's maybe talk a bit about some of the notable winners and notable guests. Now, it's interesting, of course, at the beginning of the competition, when it first started in, in 2002, they would just pick like any book from any time period, right? Like That's right. So the first year it had The Handmaid's Tale uh, by Margaret Atwood. It had Margaret Lawrence, The Stone Angel, which was, I don't know, published in like the 60s maybe? Yeah, mm-hmm. 1964. Michael Ondaatje in The Skin of the Lion. So A Fine Balance, Rohinton Ministry, amazing book. So over time, of course, the way they chose those books ha- has changed over time. And some notable books that have been discussed that I found, Life of Pi, uh, obviously, Mordecai Rich Barney's version, The Book of Negroes by Lawrence Hill, Essex County by Jeff Lemire was a graphic novel that was, of course, championed by Sarah Quinn. I love Sarah Quinn from Tegan and Sarah. And then uh, then on and on uh, to to some of the more recent books. And so uh, is there a time limit now backwards where they go? I don't know if it's officially. There have been situations, even when I've been hosting in the last five years, there are times where you champion an author's book. For example, David Cheriandi's novel Brother was championed by uh, Lisa Ray and 
David Cheriandi had already moved on to uh, promoting another book. So brother, he had to sort of go back five years in his mind and go, oh yeah, where was my head when I was writing that? Because we're interviewing him about brother. So he was like almost simultaneously having conversations and interviews about two different books. If it was about Canada Reads, he would go to brother. If it's so, uh, I think it does get a little bit challenging, not, not too daunting, but it's a little bit of a challenge, I think, for some of the authors to go back and be like, gosh, what was I thinking when I wrote that? You know, like, cause I, no pun intended, but I think once they stop writing, they often close the chapter on that book and they're like, Hey, let me move forward. What else can I write? How, what's my next book? So we take them back to a place that they weren't necessarily thinking they would go to. So I don't think there's a, a in, in my experience, there hasn't been anything more than like five, six years old. But yeah, we go, we'll, we'll go a little bit back. Right. So it's not like a literary award where it's the past calendar year or something like that. No, no, we're not, uh, we're not going to Hemingway or James Joyce or anything. Not no, but, but, it's, but it's not limited to like, oh, you have to have come out in 2021 in order for us to discuss you. It is not. You. Yeah, yeah. No. Okay. No. You know, lots, lots of different novels have been on and authors, Canadian authors, the guests, Paul Sun, Hyung Lee. From Kim's Convenience, like I said, you had uh, Sarah Quinn from Tegan and Sarah. Uh, you've had Chantal Kravietsuk. Of course, my buddy, he's not my buddy at all, but Adam Copeland, also known as the professional wrestler Edge. If you, just the thought of you and Edge standing together with his, with your head sort of wrapped in a, in a headlock, I, I'd like that. I'd pay We should, we should get him uh, on the show. He'll never okay. come on the show. He'll never All right. Come on. Okay. I just don't, uh, I don't, with you giggling like a child the whole way, I'm not sure if he'd enjoy himself on this, but we'll see what we can. But Jay Baruchel, you've been in uh, one of Jay Baruchel's shows before. Uh, Sam B, Samantha B from Full Frontal uh, and The Daily Show, Alan Thick, Ali Velshi. You couldn't have you and Ali Veshley on the same time, no, right? No, they'd be like, which Ali is speaking? And then they'd go to TV and they'd be like, they both look the same too. They're like, it's the bald, bald brown one. guys no. with glasses. No. <laughs> the one with glasses. No, no. The one who's dressed nicely. No, well, he's always dressed much nice. More, But during Canada Reads, I'll dress up. So any other notable kind of guests, uh, notable winners, notable stories from, you know, either your time or, or previously on Canada Reads? Well, I mean, depends what you mean by, by notable, but I... Uh, I think what I've always enjoyed very much is the emotion that comes to the table. And so you see, you know, I've, I've talked about this in a number of interviews. It's something that I really enjoy. And I'm right there at the table watching this happen. And I've had conversations with the panelists beforehand. And some of them seem, you know, some come in hyper-focused and others come in like, yeah, I like the book. This, this should be fun. And they're kind of, you know, I don't mean lackadaisical, uh, unprepared, but they have, their emotions are in a normal place, everything. And, you know, somehow after day one, and I know people, there are people who don't like the competitive format of it, but that competitive format will light up something that, that some people don't, doesn't, don't even know exists within them. Somehow during that first day, you come to realize more than you've realized in the months, you know, it it took one day to make you realize something that you didn't realize over months, which is how important what you're doing is. And you start thinking about the author and you feel a connection to this, this book and the author. And often those authors come from uh, communities. Let's say somebody comes from an indigenous community in Quebec. So they are a Quebec writer. They're also, let's say, a Mohawk writer. Then they also represent the particular reservation that they grew up on. And so these multiple communities 
that you are now as a panelist kind of representing or fighting for or championing it this moment of being a panelist becomes so much bigger than you and i i think that realization makes for a pretty emotional time at the table sometimes and it doesn't always get emotional but sometimes there are tears sometimes there is uh, you know there is yelling and and that's where it gets a bit challenging for me to keep things you know on on topic, let's get back to the books is a is a common thing, where you you know you don't want people sort of having these personal vendettas uh, against each other. But in general, it's it's pretty great casting, and it's it's amazing people who come to the table and uh, and champion these books, and it's, it's it's supremely entertaining. If you love literature, it's great, and then if you're also you know a fan of various forms of art, because these people, as you mentioned, some are musicians, some are actors, some are. I mean, Jody Middick was a soldier and then a you know a politician in Ottawa. You have people of all walks of life who uh, who come there and um, champion books, and then you know their own profile also grows as a result of it. Donovan Bailey was also there. Olympians. There's a number of Olympians who come and. They have a real, you know, you you see the Olympian competitive nature and work ethic in action. No Olympian, no matter how long it's been, no matter how long it's been since they won a novel, no Olympian comes there uh, without an incredible work ethic. And you get to see like, ah, this, this is why these people are successful. They are incredibly well prepared and up at fourth. I mean, a few years ago in 2021, okay, that's not a few years ago, that's last year, Rosie Edda who is a, a reporter. And I think, I don't know if she's with CTV or Global. I mean, she's a reporter. She's a former Olympian. I mean, she was up at like four in the morning doing hits for her news and then coming in and, and doing Canada Reads, which should be draining enough for the normal human beings. But her Olympic, you know, work ethic and uh, mindset and competitive nature was definitely on display. I mean, she was doing two jobs that week, which most people put everything aside and they just focus. So it's been, uh, you know, wonderful to watch. Really, really uh, one of the great experiences of my life. And I'm very, very happy that they keep bringing me back to host it. Well, speaking about that, then maybe let's talk about you and, and your preparation for this. So first of all, how did you get involved? With Canada Reads? You know, I have a friend, Trent McClellan, who will be a guest, God willing, on this uh, podcast. Trent is uh, now, he wasn't at the time, but he is now a um, cast member of This Hour Has 22 Minutes. Good buddy of mine, uh, one of my favorite human beings. He had uh, championed a book by, he's from Newfoundland originally, he had championed a book by a phenomenal author. Uh, and he actually, he won the year that he was there as well. Lisa Moore is a Newfoundland writer. Her book, February, is terrific. This is somebody who's just born for writing. I just love her way with words. So it's my friend, Trent, championing a book by somebody he loves who's writing. I also like to see him win that year was was quite something. And he was up against Ron McLean, you know, NHL broadcaster. Jay Baruchel was there, Charlotte Gray, Carol Yoon. And uh, it was not a it was not an easy thing for him to do, and he really brought something fantastic to the table, particularly in his his passionate defense of, uh, of February. And I, it kind of you know struck something in me. I was like, I think I can do this. You know, my father, who you mentioned, he was a a, a poet and an author, but he was more than anything a teacher. 
And he taught third world fiction and he, you know, instilled some of that love for fiction. Uh, just so people know, Ali doesn't brag about this a lot, but his grandfather is one of the most famous poets in Pakistan's history. Anybody in Pakistan would know who this person is. It's like a, I'm, I'm going to, you know, say it's like a T.S. Eliot. If you ask someone who knows, the, someone in America, if they know who T.S. Eliot is. That's the level of literary genealogy that occurs in Ali's family, just so you guys have an idea. Again, Ali doesn't talk about that a lot or brag about it, but it's true. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I appreciate that. You're suggesting that I'm a humble person. I don't brag about that because I don't need to be compared to that standard. I don't need to be... Oh, your grandfather is the father of modern prose poetry in Pakistan. Didn't I just hear you doing a fart joke for seven minutes on? T you know, I don't need to. I need to be free of those uh, <laughs> those pressures. But that is true, and I, you know, definitely that operates in the back of my mind that I come from a family of academics and passionate readers and writers. And so uh, Trent's uh, not not his win, just his presence on Canada Reads lit something in me and. Uh, had me paying more attention. I was already listening to Canada Reads and now I was paying more attention to it. And so I was already in the CBC building uh, hosting the show that I host called Laugh Out Loud. And I said, I went to the CBC Books people and I asked, um, you know, the head of the CBC Books, if she was looking for panelists, I wanted to just sort of put my name in the hat. I actually didn't go to her. I emailed her. And she said, we're not looking this year, but we uh, appreciate that. You know, thank you for your interest. And then nothing ever happened. And then I would run into her in the hallways and she said, I have your picture on my wall. I have put your picture on my wall. I was like, that's great. No one day she has me. into it. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and there is a doll of you with pins everywhere. Uh, no, and so picture on the wall. I'm like, oh, so she's really considering me. Anyway, one day I go to her office. Yeah, my picture's on her wall. So are the pictures of 48 other people. I was like, oh, that's is a little less flattering than I thought. I mean, because, you know, like as I explained, it's this whole game of like, if not this person, then this person, but then not this person. So they have everybody who's their wish list is up there. And then one day I got a call saying, uh, Ali, you know, you wanted to be a panelist. It's just fine. But I'm wondering why you didn't ask to be the host. I was like, what? I didn't know that was an option. I thought the host of a show called Q on CBC Radio, it's an um, arts and culture show, that person always hosted Right, Canada because it Reads. was Gian Gameshi for many years. Yep. Gian Gameshi, notable, like, disgusting human being. Let's just put that out there. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so, but notable, he was the host for many years. He, he, he was those for many years. So you just assumed whoever took over from him, whether yeah. it was a Tom Power now or was it uh, Shad? Shad, who, yeah. Shad, Shad actually won Canada Reads one year. He was on Canada Reads. Right. So you just assumed winning. that would just be the next person. I did. And I was told that, no, that was something Gion uh, cared about literature. He also cared about, as you say, some other disgusting things. And so he made that his priority, but that was not of interest to every host of Q. So I said, oh, yeah, I would be interested in hosting it. Thank you very much. I was, you know, I was hosting shows all the time. I was, that was a big part of my life being a, being a host of various comedy shows and events and things like this. So I said, yeah, I'd, I'd enjoy that challenge. If you think I can do it, then maybe I can do it. Now, then I got that call saying, we are interested in you, but again, there's a lot of moving parts. If there's another male panelist, you will not be the host. I was like, oh. Let me just put this right out of my head because this is a thing that could go away as quickly as it came. Anyway, it came to me. 
And I will share this, that hosting Canada Reads is one of the most challenging things you could ever imagine. You are sitting in a chair at a table with five human beings with different agendas and different backgrounds and different mindsets. So you have this live situation, right, that you have to manage. Then you have a teleprompter then you ha- that you have to read up. Then you have notes in front of you that you also have to refer to. Then you have a clock to your right showing you the time. Then you have somebody in your ear, a director, telling you, we got to move on to the next thing. Let's scrap this thing. We're no longer doing this thing. Let's do this. And all of that is done to a hard clock. And what that means is we start at, I think, 11.05 live. It's all being done live. So any screw up, any swearing, anything that's happening is going to be heard in real time. So we start at 11.05, I believe, right after the 11 o'clock news. And we end at a hard 11.58. And hard means in radio world, in TV world, your screen's going black. I could be in the middle of saying, listen, it's been a great black, right? It doesn't matter what I think I want to do. So you have to, as the host, wrap all of this up and do all of these things. So there is no preparing for that. There's no like, if you host this, that'll be a good dress rehearsal for calories. You're just kind of in the chair and you're doing it. And and I will say that my first year, I was it was it was rocky. It was shaky. There was a lot of moving parts, and I didn't necessarily think they'd want me back for the second year. But they had said, you know, given the circumstances that you were working with, this was great, and we'd like to keep working with you if you'd like to come back. And I, it was a real boost to my own confidence, and uh, that boost, I guess they know what they're doing over there. They probably did that on purpose. Uh, helped me be more confident as a as a host, and and helped me enjoy it a whole lot more as well. So a couple just final questions uh, about that. Do you read every book? I do read every book. Now, there is a debate about that, whereas people internally in the you know CBC books at the CBC have said maybe the moderator should not read all the books to be a truly impartial moderator. And I see the logic of that, but I also... In my opinion, to be a good host, if somebody at the table is struggling to remember the name of a character in a book, because they've also had to read five, right? So if they're like- Yeah, you know, the, every guest reads every, every book. Every guest reads all five books. And and so they've done that work. The least I can do is read, I think. But, but more importantly, if somebody is struggling to remember the name of the protagonist in a book and I'm just sort of silent- waiting. I mean, that that to me, that speaks of an a, a ill-prepared host. If I can jump in and, and say, uh, Lucy, and they go, yes, thank you, Lucy, right? I'm helping speed things along. I'm helping facilitate conversations. Now, the challenge is, of course, inevitably, as a human being, there will be books I like more than others on the panel. So that is where my own discipline has to come in. And I'm just, I have no opinion. I have no opinion. That's the that's the self-talk. That's the mantra before Canada reads. I have no opinion. I'm here to moderate. So, and that's tough as you can see I'm a guy who has uh, opinions from time to time. Times to times? Time to time. I don't yeah, I, I, yeah. I think <laughs> let's just say time to time. Time after time. Uh, so listen, uh, you told me that you're going to tell me a funny s- story. I guess it's a bit of trivia about a person named Justin Trudeau? Trudeau? So Justin Trudeau, for those who don't know, is our prime minister. I think you would know even if you don't live in Canada because of all the hatred that has been lobbed at him recently from 
directly inside the nation's capital. And um, Asif, we'd also like to hear uh, what you plan to do now that your uh, truck has been towed away. Anyway, here's the thing. I... This is something that went into Canada Reads history because Justin Trudeau was on the panel. This was before he was uh, prime minister. This was in the early 2000s. He was a panelist and he goes down in his Canada Reads history as the only person ever to vote against their own book. So every day, all five panelists have to vote (laughs) which book stays, which books go. And he was the only guy. And you take this information and you do with it what you will. But he is the one person who voted against his own book. He was so compelled by the argument of the person he was debating that he said, you know what? Yeah, my book doesn't deserve to win Canada Reads. The book I came here to champion should no longer be champion your book. You won me over. And uh, some people will say, well, what a, what a, what a great, you know, open-minded guy, open to new ideas. And other people will have some comments about backbone. You do with it whatever you, you want with that information. But it was a historic moment that nobody else has chosen to copy well uh interesting okay no comment about that (laughs) but why don't we just you want to preview uh this year yeah okay so the 2022 debates which start on march 28th i think i said 27th earlier 28th to the 31st the theme is one book to connect us and these are the books what strange paradise by omar alakat he was already once in canada reads uh four or five years ago with his book american war washington black by essie aduyan Five Little Indians by Michelle Good, Scarborough by Catherine Hernandez, and Life in the City of Dirty Water by Clayton Thomas Mueller. And the champions are Tarek Hadhat. Tarek is the founder of Peace by Chocolate. If you look up Peace by Chocolate, you'll right. learn something about him. I remember that. Yeah. Another panelist is Mark Tewksbury, Olympian. As I told you, the Olympians, very passionate, very competitive, very prepared. And I'm sure Mark will be all those things. Another panelist is Christian Allaire, who is a Ojibwe person from Northern Ontario. Okay. So a writer from Northern Ontario who has made his way to New York City and uh, works with Vogue as a style writer and a a fashion writer. The fourth panelist is Malia Baker. Now, as I told you, diversity is important at the table. We didn't mention the diversity of age. When I say we, I, young lady born in 2006. So, I mean, you do the math. Is she even 17? I'm not sure. 16, 17 years old. She is an actor. She plays Marianne Spear in The Babysitter's Club on Netflix and a huge presence on social media. Her Instagram following is uh, is massive. And it's very interesting to have that perspective there of a, of a young person. I've seen that before at the table. I really, really enjoy that. And then Suzanne Simard is the final panelist. Suzanne Simard is an author and a scientist, Canadian scientist. And in this time of climate crisis to have somebody like her who is uh, a professor in the department of forest and conservation science i mean it's uh, it's a no-brainer we had to have somebody in that field at the table and she comes uh with a heck of a lot of experience and and knowledge so it's really i don't know people will definitely have their preconceived notions challenged by this group of panelists and this 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 set of books and they will be uh, entertained i'm sure of it All right, Asif, we didn't want me to seem like the only person who's read anything in his life on this episode. 
you've done obviously plenty of reading. As I said off the top, I didn't know how much time you would have for uh, you know this non-medical related book. So these are medically related in some way or the other, but these are books for non-medical professionals. And you have four that you that really stick out from over the years. And again, we're not Canada reading this thing. We're not saying it has to be books from the last year or five years. These are books that you've read over your life that have had uh, a huge impact on you. And I think down the line, we may, you know, zero in on 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 one or two of these books and and do an episode on them. But for now, I just wanted to know their names, how you came across these books, and uh, and how they influenced you. So I'll just name them, and then we'll go into detail about each of them in a few minutes. So the first one is House of God, then an anthropologist on Mars, how doctors think, and then finally when breath becomes air. So let's start off with House of God. House of God is a novel by uh, Samuel Shem, but that's actually a pseudonym. And uh, the person who actually wrote it is a psychiatrist named Stephen Bergman. This novel was published in 1978. And this is the novel. So when we started medical school, everybody was like, oh, you got to read this novel. You got to read this novel. So that's when I read it. I read it at the beginning of medical school. So most people, almost every doctor I know has read this book. And it's usually in medical school or at the beginning of residency. You don't usually read it before medical school. Because essentially what this novel does, so it's a fictional novel, but it's it's a kind of a, a loosely fictionalized account of his internship and residency at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. So everything's been changed. The names have been changed. But clearly he talks about people going to uh, BMS, the best medical school in, in America, which is Harvard, which is HMS, Harvard Medical School. It was the first real discussion of this cynicism and the loss of idealization that occurs when you go into medicine. And we've talked about this before in the Hidden Curriculum episode, but this is the same thing. So this is a satirical novel, but not comedic. It's still quite, it tackles some pretty serious stuff. Very dark comedy, let's say. Okay. Very dark comedy. And and talking about things that people just didn't talk about in medicine. And now we've come to not only talk about them and acknowledge them and work on ways to combat cynicism and things like that. But this was very revolutionary at the time. Again, late 70s, this came out. So basically the plot is there's a doctor named Roy Bash and he starts to rotate uh, on his rotations and he encounters a senior resident who they call the fat man. That's the name of him in, in in the book and he basically teaches him like basically ignore everything you learned in medical school. I'm going to teach you the real way about this and just as an aside, the way you can think about this is this is very similar to Dr. Cox from Scrubs. And Scrubs is very influenced by this. Scrubs is much more comedic because some kind of things kind of go off the deep end. Television in the novel sitcom Scrubs. Yeah, That's sure, right. Sorry. Sure, I hope sure, people yeah. are, are remembering that. And so Dr. Cox, who's played by John C. McGinley, is this – in the very first episode of Scrubs, he's kind of abrasive and, and JD, the main character – played by Zach Braff, doesn't like him. And then at the end, he realizes, no, he actually knows what's going on. It's Kelso, who was the chief of staff of the hospital, who actually seems nice on the outside, but is actually undermining everything. Never trusted. I never trusted Kelso. I'll tell you that from day one. I saw it. I saw that. So the, the fat man says the only way to keep patients healthy and to survive psychologically is to break all the rules that you are supposed to do. And he basically has these rules. And he also uses a bunch of terms and it's unclear whether these terms were used 
before then popularized in the house of God or whether they were just out there anyway. So the one that we that's the most, and these are very derogatory terms, is a, a gomer. A patient is a gomer. Gomer stands for get out of my emergency room. <laughs> and it's like a, basically a, a very frail, usually elderly patient, maybe with dementia, who has a bunch of laundry lists, like, you know, 15 different diagnoses, very complicated. And it's almost, again, not my view at all, but why are we keeping these patients alive? They're just taking up spots in the hospital and things like that. So very cynical. And, and basically, like the fat man says, a lot of the things we do are actually harmful to these to these patients, and so you need to kind of back off and stuff, and don't and and, and don't do things. And so basically, some of his rules are: gomers don't die. One other one is gomers go to the ground, which means they will fall and they're at a fall risk. And it's actually kind of crazy because that's become in the past. 20 or 30 years, a very important thing, fall risks in elderly people and how you minimize fall risks in the hospital. So they actually were talking about something that's important. And then some of them are kind of funny, like at a cardiac arrest, the first thing you do is take your own pulse, right? Like calm down. Calm yourself. Relax. That's yeah, actually sure. good advice mm. and, and things like that. And then as, uh, as things go on, Roy, the main character, creates his own, some of his own rules. One of them is a bit cynical. You know, if you don't take a temperature, you can't find a fever, right? So, <laughs> you know, don't look for things that you don't want the answer to. But then they talk about other things that, that we, we talk about all the time. So, we, I, I think with you, we've talked about zebras, right? Zebras as a diagnosis. So, the thing is, if you hear hoof steps, think horses, don't think zebras. Think the most common thing. Don't think about that. But that was kind of popular, popularized in this in this novel. So, and, and, and another one, which is kind of important, is the delivery of good medical care is to do as much nothing as possible. And that is true. We, we do often feel that we need to do something for all patients. And you, and you have to do something. But sometimes doing nothing is actually the correct thing to do. And just wait. Don't do anything. Don't initiate treatment. Don't do any more tests. Just wait. Uh, and, and follow things along over time. So, you know, that that is sometimes good. So anyway, it, it is good. Would I recommend? I re definitely, if you, you're in medicine, you haven't read this. You should really read this. Yeah, this is what I was going to ask. Is this uh, a non-person who's tangentially interested in medicine would still get something out of this book? I or? don't know. I don't know. It'd be very interesting because uh, I only know people in medicine who've read it. So I don't know. It'd be very interesting. I think people might find it overly cynical. I mean, towards the end of the novel, this guy actually euthanizes a patient. Like, it's pretty dark. <laughs> like, I don't know if the average person wants to see that. And medicine has changed a lot, right, in the past, you know, 40 years uh, since this was written. So, I don't know. I, I, if you think it'd be interesting, you know, check it out. But definitely everybody in medicine, if they haven't read it, should probably read it. Great. Okay. So, then the next book was An Anthropologist on Mars. Uh, it has a subtitle or, or longer title called Seven Paradoxical Tales by one of your heroes. You've mentioned this, Oliver Sacks. Yeah. I mean, you know, Oliver Sacks, I, I mentioned this before, is one of the reasons I went into medicine and specifically neurology. I l love his writing. He had an earlier book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. He also wrote uh, Awakenings, which uh, then was later made into a movie with Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. And so he goes through some very interesting, basically cases of patients who he's encountered either in his personal practice or he went and kind of sought them out uh, who have neurologic disorders and, and how it kind of affects the, their their life. So 
I'll just give you a few examples from this. One of them, he talks to a person who has a huge brain tumor, who he has who has a huge brain tumor. So he has anterograde amnesia. So he can't remember anything that's happened since the late 1960s. And this was like in the 90s when he was talking to him. So he has that past history, but he can't generate new memories. Mm. And so he just remembers everything from the past, similar to like um, Memento, the movie mm-hmm. Memento. He yeah, talks sure. about that. He talks about a, a person I talk about a lot, which is Carl Bennett, who was a surgeon from, from British Columbia, actually. So he's a surgeon who had Tourette's syndrome and very, very severe tics, has them constantly. And then, but when he operates, he suppresses the tics. He can do hours and hours of surgery, completely what? still, completely. And it just goes to, and I, I use this example a lot with my patients who I see with Tourette's syndrome because I'm like, Tourette syndrome is not an involuntary movement. We talked about it on a previous episode. Mm-hmm. You have this urge to do the movement, and then you overcome the urge. Now, of course, when he suppresses it, as soon as he scrubs out of the surgery, he is flinging everywhere and having tons of ticks. Yeah, but he's, yeah, yeah. he's able to suppress it for them. So again, it kind of gives you this new idea on on life with, with a disease like this. He uh, talks about... Uh, autism, and that's where an anthropologist on Mars comes from. And, and he meets with someone named Temple Grandin. Have you heard of Temple Grandin before? I know that name. I definitely yeah. know that name. There have I think she got a fair amount of. I think her story garnered a fair amount of press. Yes, and she, there was actually a, after this book, they made a movie about her starring Claire Deans. So she's a woman with autism. And she is the anthropologist on Mars. So what she's saying when she describes herself like that, uh, she basically looks at the world and sees she, – she can't really relate to humans. So she had to learn to interact with humans not because of in, an innate knowledge of how we interact as a species, but she had to learn the rules. Like, okay, this is how you say hello to somebody. This is how you do this. This is how you do this. So because she's extremely intelligent, extremely bright, she learned the rules of this. But if you read it, she actually goes – on and I, I read her autobiography as well. But if you if you read it, uh, she was like a very had severe autism when she was younger, sort of nonverbal and all these things. And she c- can talk about how she was back then and reflect on how she is now. And it's it just just amazing this idea that she's looking uh, from the outside in on the human experience and how she has to had to learn those kind of rules as someone with autism. And she is actually really best known for because she actually could identify with animals quite a bit. She felt a real kinship to animals. And so she revolutionized the humane treatment of livestock in livestock facilities, especially the animals who are about to be slaughtered for, for meat. Oh, that is credited like to that. her specifically? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And, and she talks about how she knows as someone with autism, she likes to be compressed with like a weighted blanket or something like that and that Mm. calms her down so then she tried doing something like that with these cows for example as they're on their way being led to the slaughter and and that compression would kind of soothe them before their final moment before Mm. they're they're, uh, sacrificed so really uh, she's an amazing uh, lady and I definitely encourage you guys to read more about her but she's she's one of the most famous people in terms of talking about the experience of of autism again it would be great to do a a further topic on, on on either her or some of these other books written sure. by people who who live with autism. This particular book, as I to, as I said, it has, it's called Seven Paradoxical Tales. So each tale is effectively a case study. Yeah, that has its own very interesting. So we could probably dig in. Yeah. We could a lot probably do an on episode each. on every single one of these and, and how they work. Yeah. Okay. So uh, and then the third one was How Doctors Think by Jerome Groupman. 
Right. So Jerome Grubman is a doctor. He works at Harvard Medical School as well and the Beth Israel Hospital. So we just mentioned those in House of God. He is quite a prolific writer. He's written for The New Yorker as well as other uh, magazines. And basically what he's trying to get out of this book is a nonfiction book. And he's trying to get at how doctors think and make decisions and how they make errors. And we've talked a bit before about medical errors on the podcast and how we make clinical decisions and talks about a couple of cases, a woman who had daily stomach cramps and weight loss who saw 30 doctors over 15 years finally diagnosed with celiac disease. Mm. He talks about himself who has some ligament laxity in his right hand and he has these cysts and he's seen a number a number of doctors and orthopedic surgeons and the idea that, you know, if you as a patient can understand how doctors think, this can help you in your healthcare journey and avoid some of the errors that that people can make. So, for example, you want to avoid certain – he doesn't say you want to avoid certain doctors, but there is this idea of doctors who are compassionate, caring, who are clinically incompetent, who mm-hmm. the patients will swear up and down. They love this doctor. They're the nicest doctor in the world, but they you – know, it's like we say, they're holding your hand while you're slowly dying of a curable disease. Right. That that's that's grim, the, that's the that's that's a phrase that we say in medicine. And so, how do you avoid that? And how do you not get fooled by that? And I'll I'll give you a quick aside. There was a very famous case in Ottawa and Toronto of of a neurosurgeon who killed his wife, who was a family physician in Toronto. Yeah. And uh, it made the news here. uh, The guy pled guilty. He's in prison now, rightfully so, another disgusting human being. But I remember very clearly when it came out and, and he was charged with this crime, on the comment section on the newspaper articles online, his patients were on there defending him. He cured my my back pain after years and years there's no way he could have done this but you can't conflate these two things right mm. just because he was nice to you and caring towards you does not mean that's mutually exclusive from him murdering his sure. wife well, it's very cosby-esque if we go exactly. back to an episode we just did right this would be, be people kind of stockholm syndrome themselves and <laughs> you know. it, it, exactly so so it, t- it talks a bit about that it talks about how we cope with uncertainties in in medical treatment and in fact it echoes back to the house of God because they interview someone who says, you know, sometimes you have to follow this advice in, for a patient. Don't just do something, stand there in medicine. Don't do anything, just wait. And that's actually what the, Samuel Shem talked about in House of God. It, it concludes with some advice for patients, and, and, and this is really useful. So I really do recommend that all patients, which is really potentially everybody in this world, mm-hmm. we've all seen a doctor at least once, to ask some questions. So what else could this be? So when you're speaking with your doctor, you just say, what else could this be? And and that's a very common question I get asked from, from families. You have to be a bit careful though, because you better be prepared for the answer, right? And I know when patients don't ask me, I'm like, oh, we should do an MRI scan here. If they ask me, could it be a brain tumor? It's because they want to know if it could be a brain tumor and I'll tell them the truth. Mm. If they don't ask me, right? Sometimes it's because they don't want to know. They're like, I'll deal with it once I get this MRI scan. Exactly right. So it is so important. To, if you go to ask that question, make sure you want to know the answer. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that doesn't fit? Is there anything that is a bit unusual in my story? That's a very good question. And that's what I always think about when I see a patient. Could it be more than one thing? Again, it, it doesn't have to be just one common diagnosis. And if you're a doctor, you should be asking a patient almost at the very beginning, what are you the most worried about? And finally... Don't be afraid to retell your story from the beginning. 
Because what happens a lot of times is doctors will just read the chart, but that's there could be inaccuracies. Again, we've talked about this many times in the podcast. You want to start from the beginning with your story and make sure they understand everything that's happened. That's very interesting. It's kind of a book about how to be a better patient. Yes, right? exactly. Even though it's about how doctors think. But again, if you know how they, they think, you're, you're going to have a better healthcare experience. So it's really a, a very well done that's book. That's good. And I think when people meet you, you know, you were talking about how there are those physicians who speak with great sensitivity and all that, but aren't competent. I think they'll see like, oh, maybe Dr. Doja is being a huge jerk because he's actually competent. So, you know, you get some, you're going to get some hate mail from my patients. (laughs) Well, that's good. I like, I'd be happy to hear people supporting you. The final book, the author of this book, I I know this case and it, it hurt my heart to, um, to know about this guy. But anyway, I'll let you talk about it. The book is called When Breath Becomes Air. Right. So this is by Paul Kalanithi. He, whose name I hope I'm pronouncing properly, he is a uh, neurosurgeon who passed away several years ago. This book was published in 2016. So it basically is a memoir and about his experience with living with cancer and then eventually passing away from it. So totally interesting story with this guy. He uh, grew up in Arizona. The family moved to Arizona when he was young. His father was a physician. And he moved to one of the worst school districts in the U.S. So his mother kind of instilled a love of reading. She made them read all the time, the classics and everything like that. So while his brothers went into medicine, he's like, forget that. I'm not going to medicine. He went into the arts. He went to Stanford, did a bachelor and master of arts in English. And he also did a bachelor of science in human biology. But then he went to Cambridge and did a philosophy of science and medicine degree. As he progressed, he developed this love of neuroscience, which kind of brought him back in the fold. And he has this, the way this this book is written is is so interesting because just the wording he uses is is from a from a writer and a poet. It's not from a doctor. Mm. Uh, very different than the other books that we talked about. They're all great writers, but this guy is writing, like I said, more like a poet. And, and the the language he uses and, and things like that is just amazing. For example, the title is you know when does breath when you exhale it become the air and the air around us and we breathe right. Mm. And that's really a philosophical topic, not a medical topic. So he went into neurosurgery, then he basically developed a bunch of symptoms and he was diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer. Never smoked and this type of cancer he had was not, you often don't have a history of smoking. He tried to go back to neurosurgery after doing some treatment and then found that too difficult. At the same time, of course, he's married to his wife, who's an internal medicine physician who he met in medical school at Yale. And and kind of this this journey that they have together, they decide to, to have a baby while he's getting the chemotherapy. Yeah. And very interesting, He he did something which I don't do, is that he... Because of his status as a neurosurgeon and physician, he didn't step back and let his oncologist, uh, Dr. Hayward, uh, just run the show. He wanted to be treated like a consultant and give his opinion on his case and things like that, which I, I think that's important to a certain extent, but it, it's, a, it's a fine balance. And it, it was interesting reading about that. And you know, in the end, of course, he, he passes away. His, his daughter is quite young, I think less than a year when he passed away. And, and details the struggle, and then his his wife does the epilogue for the book and kind of talks about her perspective on things. Yeah, this story was so heart wrenching to me. He had this child. They had a child. They they made a plan to have a child that he knew he would never get to know. Like I mean, uh, God, you don't wish that on anybody. But I, 
and also it was it's so valuable to have i think you know this body of work that chronicles this kind of like a you know a love letter that his daughter can read later in life and get an appreciation for the man who was her father who would have been her father all right well good suggestions there man house of god by Samuel Shem, that is, as you said, for anyone who liked scrubs and likes dark comedy, would enjoy that. An Anthropologist on Mars, written by your hero and uh, you know, de facto mentor, Oliver Sacks. That is a book for anybody who is interested in, in, in strange things that happen in, in health and in medicine. How Doctors Think, as you said, uh, you know, as you suggested, uh, by Jerome Groupman, that is something that patients, which is everybody. Doctors also have a patient side to them, you know. Basically, everybody could benefit from reading that and, and getting into the mind of doctors. And then finally, the late Paul Kalanithi's When Breath Becomes Air. I think I'm going to read that as soon as I, uh, as soon as Canada reads over. I'm going to read that. I really, I remember that story in the news. I remember reading articles and I was fascinated, gripped by the whole story I, and gripped by sadness thinking about it and reading about it too. I'll, um, yeah, I like a good sad book. I like a good cry, oddly, when I read. And uh, I'm going to get into that. Thanks for those, Asif. Okay, so that's our show for today. Before we get out of here, just remember, reach out to us, uh, Comedian at uh, gmail.com. Let us know. Do you have any suggestions for uh, maybe medical books that people should check out? Very curious to hear from physicians and non-physicians as well about any ideas that you have. There are there's, there's many, obviously. There's countless ones. But maybe let us know. And if there's some that are really good, maybe we'll – and we haven't read. We'll read and then talk about it on the podcast. That would be a, a great future episode. Sure. Reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Dr. V Comedian. And and Ali, I mean, I guess you do have something to plug just to wrap up. Canada Reads, March 28th to the 31st. You can just Google Canada Reads, basically. You can go to the CBC website. You can get, there are numerous ways to either watch or listen, either the podcast, uh, CBC Listen, CBC Gem, CBC Radio. So if you're not listening, you're trying hard not to. The CBC has done its part in getting this show to you. But if you go to the you know cbc.ca slash Canada Reads, you can get some information on these books and these authors and these panelists and, um, and get a little bit more invested in the, in the show that's coming up very soon. And before you guys go, remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.